it is likely the case that most families have secrets that they just don't like to bring up, right? Maybe they are big issues, and the family knows to ignore the topic when you get together. We, we ain't talking about that. Because it's something everyone is familiar with, and they would just rather not have to deal with what has happened in the past. Maybe it's something that happened, but not everyone is aware of it. Several family members know. A lot of family members don't know. And if it's alluded to in passing at some point, maybe some of the people who are, you know, may just coming to adulthood and have never heard this are kind of like, what? Excuse me? What? Repeat that? They're shocked about this revelation of how something like this could happen in our family. And family secrets can stay hush-hush for a while. But of course, someone knows them and they leak out over time. Other family issues aren't secret. But maybe they should be. You don't want people to know things that have happened in your family and it's an embarrassment to you even though it was generations back and you had nothing to do with it. Well, as we drop into Genesis this morning, we come into contact with a story that may be just like that. Because it's a scandal from top to bottom. There is injustice in how Dinah was treated by Shechem. And there is the deceitful and savage response of her brothers. I'm guessing that some of you might be coming into contact with this story for the first time, and you were listening or reading along going, what in the world is this? Others of you have likely been eyeing chapter 34 coming on the horizon. What is this guy going to do with that one? In fact, I know somebody who asked about that quite a while back. You're in Genesis. You ain't skipping anything, are you? Nope. What about that story? Yep. As I was looking at uh, some of my commentaries, I have several commentaries, some of them that are uh, sermons that have been turned into a commentary, and some of them skip this passage. They're preaching through Genesis, and they skip them. But that's not what we're going to do. We're going to address this passage because it is a part of Holy Scripture, and, and God intended it to be there. But no matter how you slice it, no matter what you do with this story, it's a shameful thing. What is done to Dinah is shameful. And even if you were to try and put a spin on the story that the brothers were taking vengeance for a terrible wrong on their sister, you can't argue that it's shameful to kill all those people who had nothing to do with Dinah being violated by Shechem. And when we stop and think about the story, of one of the most shameful things that occurs is the way in which the brothers of Dinah are able to do this. What did they do? They are using arguably their most important ritual to deceive and to kill people. Circumcision was the covenant sign of Almighty God. It was how they were set apart to God. It was given to those in the covenant family. And the children of Israel, the the sons of Jacob, they used deception to bring people into their group only to murder them. Now this morning, we're not going to do what we normally do. We're, I'm not going to break down the story into two or three points and work through it verse by verse. 
Uh, the story doesn't really lend itself to that in the way most other passages do. Instead, we're going to think about the story as a whole. We're going to do our best, though, to find some application from this shameful story because it's a part of the history of the people of God. Now, before we think about the events in the story, though, I want to take a moment to address something about the fact that this story is in Holy Scripture at all. You may have heard a common objection to the Bible. It's suggested that it's been edited, and it has been redacted so many times over the centuries that we could not possibly know what is intended to be said. And so the things that we don't like, usually, right? The things that we don't like clearly were put in there by people who were editing and redacting and taking out what God really meant. Well, is that true? Is this argument against God's holy word true? It's common. It's very common. But is it true? Is any of it true? Well, not only does the manuscript evidence of God's holy word not show this, there's, there's no physical evidence that any significant portions of Scripture have been edited. But we can also look at stories like this one, right? We look at this story, and you have to think, wouldn't this have been the first story to be redacted? Wouldn't you have dropped this one out immediately? This is embarrassing on every possible level. If you were trying to make the Christian faith or the Hebrew faith look good, this story would find its way to the cutting room floor immediately. It wouldn't even be the spe- in the special features of things cut out on the DVD, right? It, it would be cut out and burned. But one of the amazing features of God's holy word is that it puts everything out there, right? Warts and all. It doesn't hide the sin of the people of God. In, in fact, it seems to draw it out continually, right? Really, in, in all of Scripture, very few people come out looking very good. Obviously, Jesus comes out looking good. We can go with that one. But otherwise, it's basically Joseph and Daniel and maybe some other ones. But everyone else is a train wreck. We've seen this here in Genesis, right? Noah, he was a righteous man. God saved him in the flood. He must be perfect. He must be great. He must be the one that God intends to save us from our sin. And then what happens? We have the story of Noah getting drunk, right? Abraham the hero of the faith. He should be the one who's going to be perfect and wonderful. But over and over, what did we see? That that Abraham, even though he's seen as the man of faith, he didn't have faith. He didn't trust that God would protect his wife, and so he lied multiple times. But she was his sister, so he wouldn't get killed. We see that promised child is going to come through Sarah. What did Abraham and Sarah do? They had a child through Hagar. They didn't trust God. And you can probably come up with some other examples, David and Bathsheba, of other heroes of the faith who are supposed to be the big ones. This is it. They're the one. But the Bible gives us everything. It tells us all the terrible things that have happened. And this is really a wonderful thing. You know why? Because it shows us that ultimately we are all guilty of sin and wickedness. And it's on display for us in the Bible. It shows us our absolute need for a Savior. We're fallen. We're fallen in sin. We are desperately wicked. So we need a Savior who can rescue us from the evil 
that we do. And so, as we come to this, sco- this story, disgusted by what is done, it also can give us a confidence. God can use this story for us to give us a confidence of his word and the truthfulness of it, and also to remind us that humanity is in desperate need of a Savior. And in that way, it points us to the salvation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at some of the details of this story. We're going to go through it pretty quickly. But we have to remember that in the previous chapter, Jacob finally encountered his brother, and they came to a peaceful agreement. But what happened? When they, when they parted ways, Jacob didn't go towards Esau. He went away from Esau. He went, he went to Shechem. Okay? Didn't want to be near Esau. And, and as I said earlier, this story reminds us of Dinah. We've kind of forgotten about her. The emphasis has been on the sons of Israel, but here we're reminded that Leah gave birth to a daughter named Dinah. And it turns out that Shechem, who is the son of the prince of the land, is, is quite taken with Dinah, and he does the unthinkable. And the text here says that he humiliated her. Now, this isn't saying that she was embarrassed and couldn't show her face around there anymore because he'd made fun of her clothes or something. That was not what the humiliation is. We know what it is. It says it right here in the text. The idea is that he has violated her. He has forced himself upon her. He has raped her. Now, we don't, we don't have much in the way of details in, in this story. We, we don't know if he feels bad about what he's done or if he's convicted of what he's done to her because, well, I better make peace of this because she's got 11 brothers, right? We don't know. But he, he wants it cleaned up a little by marrying her. So regardless, the, the text says that his soul was drawn to her and he decided he wanted to have her as his wife. And, and Hamor, his father, is going to try and arrange this marriage to take place. Well, as you can imagine, this whole scenario isn't very popular. You know how you would react if, you heard, if this happened to your family, right? Imagine where these people are at. No one's happy, but her brothers are really unhappy. And, and you can easily imagine this in your mind's eye, right? You can see these brothers wanting to take care of business. Leah's sons are probably the angriest, and probably some of the other brothers are holding them back, you know. You can sort of see this whole happening. Simeon and Levi, they want to bust heads, man. You can imagine this, how upset they are, because you'd be upset. At this point in the story, what do we all want? We want justice. That's what we want. We all want Shechem to pay for the evil that he's done to Dinah. And so the attempt to clean up Clean this all up with a marriage and a gift is, is really disgusting to our modern eyes, modern minds, right? I'm sure it may have made sense to them because by violating her, they took away the prospects of who would marry her. And so they're offering the bride price as a compensation to Jacob for losing a daughter. But while this would have been the traditional marriage custom, it doesn't get justice, right? It just washes over the fact And it tries to make the reprehensible sin of Shechem okay after the fact. Ah, yeah, it's sin, but we're going to make it right now. That's not justice. That's just washing over evil. And so if you're hearing this story for the first time, you you probably don't think the story can get any more interesting, right? If If you weren't familiar with the story, you're probably thinking, this can't get any weirder than this. This can't get any crazier, but it does. We find that the sons of Jacob are now going to emulate their father. Look at what it says. They answer deceitfully. Hmm. 
Who's been the deceiver in the story of Jacob so far? What was his name? It was heel grabber or deceiver. That language is deliberate, right? We're seeing that the deception of Jacob is, is sneaking over into his sons. The deceiver Jacob has apples that don't fall very far from the tree. That's the idea that we're seeing here. So as I imagine this story in, in my mind's eye, I can see the wheels turning in the minds of Jacob's sons. Hmm, you want to marry and intermarry with us, huh? Well, if they want to be a part of us, they have to be circumcised. If they do that, the adult males are going to be really sick and sore in three days. They won't be able to move. Perfect. We can go in and get justice then. I mean, you can see, just so you can imagine how this is working in the sons of Israel. And I can also see the smirk on their faces when Hamor agrees, right? Yeah, you bought it, buddy. Here we go. Yep. And as you read the story, you can see where this is going to go. They, they aren't going to face the one who defiled their sister man to man. They're not going to take care of it with the person who did it. They aren't going to take him down and, and risk the backlash of everyone in the area. So instead, they're going to slaughter every last one of them in cold blood. And the irony here is really thick, isn't it? They're so concerned about the honor of their family and the honor of their sister. Important things. But what happens? Their actions bring shame on their family. Not just in the moment, not just in that region in that time, not in the way that people groups around them now view them. But here we sit, you and I sit, we're removed by several thousand years, and we're still looking at what they've done shamefully. We're disgusted by it. We're disgusted by this slaughter that these men have enacted upon the people of Shechem. And Jacob is disgusted too. And you have to love the language that he uses here. You've made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. He's worried that the people will fear him, and if they attack, they won't be able to do anything about it because they're just a small band of people, these Israelites. Now, I can, I can understand this fear. You can too, I'm sure. But, but this isn't just about you, Jacob. This isn't just about you. They've slaughtered innocent people, man. Jacob is again living in fear, isn't he? He just can't get away from living in fear. He spent all those years running from Esau and living in fear of his deceit catching up with him. And now it's continuing because of the evil actions of his son. He can't get away from it. And as I mentioned, you can understand Jacob's fear, but you can also understand where Levi and Simeon are coming from. Are we just supposed to accept a, a bridal price for the stealing of the innocence of our sister? Should, should Shechem just been allowed to buy his way out of raping Dinah? And you see their question here as the passage closes. Should he be allowed to just treat our sister like this? So this whole story is a mess. And it's a reminder for us of something important that keeps unfolding for us here in the text of Genesis. We often get to points in the story that feel like a resolution, right? Noah is on the ark 
All the evil is gone from the world. This must be the resolution to the story. The Savior is going to come and rescue us. Nope. With Abraham, Isaac is finally born. Isaac is the child of the promise. Here we go. Nope. Sorry. Jacob is the deceiver. He leaves from the promised land. He comes, he claims that God is his own, and he goes back into the promised land. We've arrived, finally. He's going to settle there. His offspring will be as numerous as the stars, and by him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? Nope. It's not happening yet. God isn't ready to bless him with possession of the land. It's not time yet. God's promise will finally come to pass one day. And we believe that, right? As we read the story. And we think maybe it's Jacob. Maybe he's finally come to repentance. Maybe he finally understands. Jacob, the father of the 12 sons of Israel, he's in the land. Finally, it's going to happen. And then this story comes and just drops on us like a ton of bricks, right? This family isn't ready to have a redeemer yet. They need one, but none of them are worthy. None of them are worthy. All things are not ready to be set to right yet. Just because Jacob's in the land, salvation isn't coming yet. Because Jacob's deception has been passed on to the next generation. That's the flow of the story here. The deception is being passed on The fear of of one man in Esau, the fear of one man, has now been expanded to the fear of all the people in the land. No matter how close we thought we were to resolving the plot here, it's only just begun. But without looking forward in the story, we can know something about the bigger picture. Despite the unfaithfulness of the people, we will find that God will continue to be faithful to them. Despite their deceit, despite their treachery, God is going to keep the promise to bless all the nations of the earth through them. No amount of evil from them, even this terrible evil, is going to stop God from bringing salvation through the promised seed of the woman. This event in the family of Jacob isn't going to keep Jesus from coming. In fact, this shows us why we need Jesus so badly because our sin is a violation of the law of God and we can do nothing on our own to save ourselves we need the seed of the woman to come in we need the seed of the woman to come in our very own flesh to bear the wrath of God for the sin that we have done and so by God's grace Christ came and he did this for us and now through faith and the work of the Holy Spirit in us We know that our sins have been forgiven and we have been given the gift of eternal life. And so, the big story beneath this story for us today is that God is faithful to his covenant people. And so, our application here today is we are the covenant people of God. So as we come to this table this morning for the covenant meal of this, our covenant people. May we be reminded of the faithfulness of God despite these heinous and wicked things. God was faithful to his people and despite our sin and our unbelief, God is faithful to forgive our sins and he brings us to the table to receive the covenant sign, the seal of our faith that we have in him for salvation.
Your sins have been forgiven in Christ. No matter what it is, God comes to you by grace through faith. And he keeps his covenant promise to you. And so as you partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, may God, through his word and the, and the spirit, be at work in you to remind you of this amazing faithfulness that he has. And may you be blessed with a sure confidence in the mercy that God has shown to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I say to you, regardless of where you have been, come today and taste and see that the Lord is good and that he brings salvation to his covenant people. Amen.